Hey friends, I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful super fans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available weekdays on CBC Listen. This is a CBC Podcast. Writer Margaret Atwood was on stage in Toronto recently to introduce a yearly event named for her late husband, a founder of the Canadian chapter of the literary freedom organization, PEN. It is my absolute honor and pleasure to be introducing this year's Penn Graham Gibson lecturers, Masha Gessen and Andrei Kirkov. Ukrainian Andrei Kirkov and Russian-born American Masha Gessen. This event, called Notes on an Invasion, brought together two of the most respected on-the-ground observers of Russia's war on Ukraine. They could not be more timely at this momentous moment in world history. One was born in Russia and is a much-read and respected first-person expert on the subject. The other is Ukraine's most eminent novelist, who is currently suffering the up-close and personal effects of Russia's imperialistic and stupid invasion of his country. the stakes are high. Death, destruction, social, psychological, and cultural costs. This war is a tragic, life-altering reality for Ukrainians, even as they resolutely fight back. As a survivor of the Polish resistance movement once said to me, pray that you will never have the opportunity to be a hero. For many outside Ukraine, the war is deeply alarming, both in what Vladimir Putin's aggression harkens back to historically and what it means for the world now. For Margaret Atwood, Having been born in November 1939, I'm suffering flashbacks to my childhood and keep waiting for the ration books and the air raid sirens to turn up. I'm very concerned by the rise of totalitarian sentiments and actions in the United States, not to mention Canada. As has often been said, it can't happen here is always wrong. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. I moderated the 2023 Penn-Gibson discussion with Masha Gessen and Andre Kirchhoff. We gathered on September 24th, by coincidence, exactly 20 months after Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine. Since they are writers, I was curious to ask each of them for their take on the conflict's characters and narratives, and, given that Russia refers to it as a special military operation, their views on how language functions in this war. For the author, New Yorker essayist, and Russian-born dissident Masha Gessen, Language is power. Russia weaponized 
in his propaganda, the politics of language in Ukraine. Ukraine has been a bilingual country up until basically this war. Ukrainians have the very interesting advantage over Russians in that they understand the enemy's language, but the country that has attacked them doesn't understand Ukrainian. For novelist Andrei Kirkov and his fellow Ukrainians, language can also be practical, a matter of survival. The, the most common phrase in the streets where I live, uh, in Kiev, in central Kiev, uh, when there is a siren, definitely somebody is asking loudly, where is the ne- next uh, bomb shelter? And this phrase has only one meaning. Recorded at Harborfront Center Theater as part of the International Festival of Authors, here's my conversation with Masha Gessen and Andrei Kirkov. One of the biggest external narratives that you read in the papers and you see on television very, very often has been this high level of unity and determination of the Ukrainian people. How accurate is that as a characterization of people in Ukraine? In the beginning of the war, the solidarity was incredible. It was unimaginable before for me personally because, I mean, we left uh, Kiev with my wife uh, on the second day after the all-out attack. And first we tried to go to the village house Uh, Then we were told that the tanks are moving towards our village and we had to escape further. And our kids were in Lviv, in western Ukraine. And actually, uh, we had lots of very positive experience. Like, we got stuck in the mountains, in Carpathian Mountains. It was minus 15 outside. Uh, I was running engine uh, not to get frozen, but there was very little petrol. And the traffic jam was 70 kilometers long from the middle of the mountains to Mukachevo. And then a man who recently bought abandoned touristic hostel somewhere 20 kilometers away took us to this hostel and then went back to the traffic jam and brought 25 cars with families with kids to the same place and organized electrical heating, etc. So, I mean, and, and when we got to Ushgorod on the border, a small town on the border, a lady we never met gave us the key from her flat. And we stayed in this flat for four months. So you, you can imagine what kind of solidarity we had. I was surprised to hear you talking about how this is a state of affairs that has only been brought on because of the war, that Ukrainians are normally more individualistic. Yeah, actually, I I was thinking about this today because, I mean, this solidarity uh, is great, but it can turn into some kind of collectiveness which existed in the Soviet Union and exists still in, in Russia. And actually, the main difference between Russians and Ukrainians, and I'm not talking about ethnic difference, the people who live in Ukraine, uh, 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 they are individualists. They want to be able to say what they think, to be respected for their opinion, to fight for their opinion. And uh, this is why we have 400 political parties in the country. And Russia (laughs) is run on one political party like in the Soviet time, the party of Putin. What about in Russia, Masha? You write about totalitarianism and how the Russian regime affects ordinary Russians. Has the public attitude within Russia changed, do you think, over the past 20 months? I don't think you can meaningfully talk about public attitude, right? Uh, There's no public. Fair enough. (laughs) And there's no opportunity to form opinion. You know, when Hannah Arendt wrote about totalitarianism, one of her great observations was that there's the difference between tyranny and totalitarianism is that tyranny just demands certain behaviors or certain statements from you. It's it's transactional. 
And totalitarianism robs you of the very ability to form opinions, right? It, it seeks to dominate you totally. So I think there's, there's always a lot of misapprehension when we look at results of public opinion surveys, right? Each one of those words needs to be in, in, in quotes when we talk about Russia. Because I think that a lot of the time, Westerners will ask, are people saying what's expected of them and hiding what they really think, or are they saying what they really think? The whole problem is that it is impossible for that person or, and for that entire society to distinguish between what's expected of them and what they really think. Yeah. Is it fair to ask you what you think is the most likely sort of sentiment is as we stand right now about the war? I mean, do you have a good sense I of I mean, that? the most likely sentiment is exactly what we read in the papers. There's no, there's no other level there, yeah. right? And that's support for the war, which Russians are not calling a war, but invoking all the war imagery and war sentiment that they can. And, you know, I think that there are, again, lots of misconceptions in the West um, based on, I think, some experiences that, are, uh, that have almost no parallels to what we're watch- observing in Russia. For example, you know, the experience of the Vietnam War, the idea that a huge number of casualties and, and a lot of young men coming back injured and maimed in every way will, uh, will somehow sway public opinion. That makes so many assumptions and is such an ignorant way of, of thinking about Russia because imagine that you are a woman living in a small town or a large city in Russia surrounded by people who seem to support the war. And imagine that your only son has been taken away and disappeared, yeah. right, or, or killed in the war. And so now you can isolate yourself further from the only world you know by suggesting that you are somehow against the war. Or you can at least rely on this sentiment that seeks to be somehow mobilizing and somehow inspiring and say, my son was a hero. And what are you going to choose? And how can we possibly blame those kinds of people for being unable to to pay the psychic cost of resistance? So I think that my prediction is that the the longer this goes on, the more solidified Russian, you know, the the thing that we inaccurately call Russian public opinion will be in favor of the war. The National Union of Journalists of Ukraine is accusing Russia unsurprisingly, of deliberately targeting journalists in, in, uh, and their facilities in Ukraine. How much of the story, Andre, of the war in Ukraine actually is about rewriting the overall narrative, starting with that first draft of history? Well, first of all, I mean, this war is run on three levels. The lower level is just to grab the territory. Second level is the war against Ukrainian identity, because identity forces Ukrainians to defend their land. An identity is made of language, culture, and history. Putin is rewriting history to get rid of Ukrainian history. He is saying that Ukrainians don't exist. At the same time, he loves Peter the Great, and Peter the Great in 1709 was uh, actually leading the Russian army in the Battle of Poltava against Ukrainian army of Getman Mazepa and Swedish army of Karl XII, which was supporting Ukrainians. On the third level, it's a geopolitical war between three 
rock countries, Russia, Iran, and North Korea, against Western democracies and Western world. So, I mean, what we have, what is uh, most dangerous is that on the second level, when we are talking about the war against identity, uh, Russia is targeting people, actually, who are representing this identity the most. Mm -hmm. That's why, actually, author of books for children, Volodymyr Vakulenko, was executed with two bullets yeah. uh, in Kharkiv region. And uh, I don't know, was it accidental or not, but in Bucha, one of the first victims was a uh, Ukrainian translator of Latin and antique uh, Greek literature, Alexander Kislyuk. And we have now more than 30 writers killed, uh, poets, film directors, opera singers, uh, you name it. Yeah. So, I mean, the cultural losses are not only hundreds of libraries destroyed, but hundreds of representatives of Ukrainian culture killed. I, I did want to ask you about that. What you think is the prognosis for the cultural and literary landscape when there is such an urgent uh, presentation of, of, of them having to change their lives, not only in what they produce, but in their daily lives, in terms of production of cultural products and books and poetry and all of that? What's the long-term progress? Well, prognosis? I mean, poetry is alive. And mm -hmm. actually, people uh, in the time of war need poetry much more than prose. Uh, novels are practically not written. There are many books of non-fiction, many uh, war diaries, many diaries of refugees, etc. But we don't have new love stories or science fiction or things like this. And I think the years of war will not be represented properly uh, in the future in the history of literature and history of culture. Masha, can you address that question just of how much you think this war is about a rewriting of history? I'm going to, I'm going to go back to Arendt. Another thing that she, told, she observed about totalitarianism is that totalitarian ideology has this very peculiar sort of twist, which is that it, um, it claims to, to know the laws of history. And then totalitarian regimes appoint themselves the enforcers of these imaginary laws of history. And that's exactly what we're observing. We're observing it's a colonial war, an imperial war, and it's a totalitarian war, right? And, this, and that totalitarian aspect is that Putin claimed from the very beginning, and he, he published this uh, insane article, what was it, about eight months before the full-scale invasion, and then gave a couple of speeches. He fancies himself a historian in that mold, right? History from which ideology can be derived. And in his reading of history, Ukraine doesn't exist. Ukrainian language doesn't exist. Ukrainian culture doesn't exist. The Ukrainian nation doesn't exist. Ukrainian people do not exist. And so having appointed himself the enforcer of these laws of history, he is now seeking to obliterate Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian language, Ukrainian nation, Ukrainian people. And we see this in the way that, that Russia acts. And I think Ukrainian human rights defenders have accurately argued that it's a genocidal project precisely because it is, this war seeks to obliterate Ukraine as a nation, to make, to make it not exist. And, then, and so, for example, when we see that Russia has, in the, in the areas that it has occupied, has systematically tried to move people to Russia. Mm -hmm. I think we've heard more about children because I think it's a story that sort of is 
more dramatic and people remember it faster. But I think it's important to understand that it's not only children, it's um, millions of people. We don't know exactly how many, but the Russians are claiming that there have been more than five million Ukrainians who have crossed the border into Russia. And they're issued Russian passports, they're in many ways encouraged to, to stay in Russia, sometimes they're coerced into staying in Russia. Using the uh, word refugees to describe them. Uh, they're using the word refugees yeah. to describe them, of course. Uh, and that, that clearly pursues two ends. One is to turn these Ukrainians into Russians, but also to depopulate those parts of Ukraine to make Ukrainians not live there so they can be colonized by, by Russians. Well, actually, at the same time, uh, Russia brings to occupied territories uh, guest workers from Tajikistan and uh, Russian teachers, Russian plumbers, Russian policemen, etc. So, I mean, they moved up to one million Russians to Crimea after annexation to make the percentage of the uh, real Crimean population of Crimean Tatar minuscule. And now they are trying to do the same, but it is not working properly because, I mean, the front is very dynamic. And so, I mean, it is just dangerous to, to stay on occupied territories for Russians. Yeah. Staying with you, Andre, you, you have, as a fiction writer who's interested in character and psychology, you've contemplated the character of Vladimir Putin in a fictional way. What is it that, when you look back now, given everything that has happened, what is it that you found most interesting about that character? It's not a nice character, of course, but I mean, for example, uh, I, I follow what he says over years. And like uh, uh, seven years ago and before, he was saying that his favorite Tsar is Ivan the Terrible. And it was very clear why. Because he liked actually to... Uh, to torture people. He liked the idea, I mean, the, this KGB background cannot be erased from, from his mentality. Uh, then uh, he switched to Peter the Great. And actually, first I was quite surprised because Peter the Great was open to Europe. He was going to Netherlands to learn how to build ships. He invited German doctors to work in St. Petersburg, etc. But uh, he laughed. And he loves Peter the Great, not because of this, but because of this battle against Ukrainians, where Ukrainians lost. And then, actually, the battle was in 1709. In 1720, Peter the Great signed the first decree banning religious texts in Ukrainian language in the churches. They were removed and printing new texts was forbidden. And this was one of more than 40 decrees by different Russian Tsars banning or limiting the usage of Ukrainian language. Uh, Ukrainian theaters, theaters were banned. Teaching in Ukrainian was banned. Catherine the Great banned uh, teaching in Ukrainian in the oldest Kyiv's University, Kyiv Mahila Academy. It was, I think, 1770 or 78. So, I mean, this is what he likes. And this war for him is his Poltava battle. He wants to repeat Peter's uh, success and remain in the Russian history as somebody who recreated, restored Russian empire and made Russia great again. That's why probably he liked Trump so much. <laughs> Masha, you, in 2012 you wrote the book The Man Without a Face. And more than a decade later, I'm curious what your thoughts are in terms of whether you thought you assessed him correctly in that book. Yeah, that, that book has actually held up pretty, pretty well, unfortunately. <laughs> At the time, 
it was it was quite well received, but I got two criticisms. One was that I was given to exaggeration. I was hysterical. Well, that one I think we've settled. Uh, and uh, I mean, because one of the things that I actually worked on in the, in the book was trying to to make the argument for a pattern of poisonings, which uh, which hadn't really appeared as a, as a pattern at that point, right? And now we know very well mm-hmm. that Putin has his opponents poisoned in various ways in various places. And then the, the 2014 edition of the book actually argued that there's going to be a big war, that, um, that the occupation of Crimea was the first step to, to a big war. The other criticism of the book was that, okay, that's all very convincing, but Gessen argues that Vladimir Putin is just really stupid, but nobody reaches that kind of level of power while being really stupid. And I actually, I think 2016 disabused the world of this nation. I felt, you know, saddened but vindicated. But, you know, another common narrative that we hear is that this is a war that comes down to the, the actions of a single man, you know, who's ambitious and who's... How, how deep do you, would you say the support is of this attempt to take Ukraine in the quarters of Russian power if Vladimir Putin ceases to be leader? If he ceases to be leader, the answer is simple. It's Putin's war, right? Nobody else needs that war. Nobody else really wants that war for themselves. But that should not be taken to mean that there's no support for the war. As long as Putin is in power, and at this point he's still in power probably indefinitely, his so-called elites have no choice but to stick as close as possible to him. And the more international pressure there is on Russia, the, more, the closer they stick to him. Um, and I think that this idea that this is Putin's war is sometimes used to absolve other Russians. But tens of millions of Russians supported and enabled and cooperated with um, and continue to support and enable and cooperate with the regime that's waging this war. And in this sense, I think it's more accurate to call it Russia's war. I think it is Russian war, not Putin's war, because, I mean, Russians created Putin, not Putin created Russians, first of all. Second thing is that during 20 years, uh, out of 23 of Putin's reign, Uh, there was very powerful propaganda against Ukrainians in Russia. In the films, you had Ukrainians as negative characters. So actually, uh, the Russians don't trust Ukrainians. They consider them traitors, dishonest, etc. In the cult film Brother, uh, partially actually the action takes place in New York, and this positive uh, macho character uh, is coming there to face Ukrainian mafia. So the, the most dangerous people in New York are Ukraine mafia, which never existed in New York. <laughs> but in fact, actually, there are so many videos on YouTube of uh, Russians saying proudly uh, that they will win, they will take over Ukraine, they will force Ukrainians to love Russians. This is some kind of idea fix which is difficult to understand, but, it's, but I think probably, historically, probably it is possible to understand. Russia wants to be loved. That's why, actually, Russia was investing 
in promotion of Russian culture everywhere. Mm -hmm. That's why when I was traveling first time in Germany, uh, in every town I would come, even small, there would be a poster of either Russian army choir singing or Don Cossack choir singing. So I had a feeling that I was followed everywhere but Russian choirs. <laughs> Generally, this cultural presence of Russia was a political presence. It was not only organized to compensate the negative political image of the country, which is quite aggressive to the neighbors, mm -hmm. but it was to show how great is Russia, including in culture. Novelist Andrei Kirkov and journalist Masha Gessen in a conversation about Russia's war in Ukraine. Notes on an Invasion is the 2023 Penn Canada Graham Gibson Talk, recorded at the Harbourfront Centre Theatre in Toronto. Ideas is a podcast and a broadcast, heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, on US Public Radio, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Andrei Kirkov is the author of a non-fiction book, an eyewitness account of living through the start of the Russian attack on Ukraine. It's called Diary of an Invasion. He also writes regularly about life during wartime for his hometown paper, the Kyiv Post. But before February 2022, Andrei Kirkov was primarily a novelist an award-winning writer of fiction, translated and read internationally as well as in his native Ukraine. His wry, relevant novels, such as Death and the Penguin, are praised for their humor and intellect. Here is Andrei Kirkov speaking on the CBC last spring, talking about the war's effect on his writing life. I'm trying hard to get back to writing the novel that was interrupted by this new invasion. And uh, I, I fail regularly, on the regular basis. I cannot distract myself from the reality. Probably this is some kind of uh, disease, psychological disease, that you, you want to check on the news every hour, every half an hour. I mean, the news from Ukraine, news from Donbass, from Bakhmut, becomes drug. And you are a drug addict. You are news addict. 
And to write a fiction, you have to to leave the reality and to go in the world you are creating for several hours at least a day. And you shouldn't answer phone and you shouldn't listen to radio or check headlines online. Journalist Masha Gessen has written on many subjects, science, LGBTQ issues and Donald Trump. Their latest book is Surviving Autocracy. But Russia and its political history are Masha Gessen's primary subjects. You could say it is in their blood. Here they are on CBC in 2017, speaking to Michael Enright on the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution. When I was a kid, hanging out in dissident circles, we had this joke, which isn't a joke at all, but in times of terror, a joke can be just stating a fact. So the joke was that Russia had democracy for eight months, from February until October 1917. My, gran- my great-grandfather was the uh, parliamentary correspondent for the leading Russian newspaper at the time and prided himself on never having missed a, a session of parliament for the 12 years that Russia had a parliament. So I once actually spent a summer reading all of his stories. He wrote his last one on October 26, 1917. No kidding. And, um, and he gave up journalism after that. The next day, he realized that he was not going to be able to yeah. to work in the new country. He would write these full page, full newspaper page stories every day from yeah. Parliament between February and October. And sometimes he was excited and sometimes he was despondent. But it was a kind of life. It was actual political life as, you know, as, as vibrant as, as any political life ever has been. And then it just shut down. Under threat as both an anti-Putin journalist and LGBTQ parent, Masha Gessen left Russia for New York in 2013. Putin, the personal and the political, in the context of the Russia-Ukraine war. Those are the topics we discussed in the second half of the 2023 Penn Canada Graham Gibson talk, recorded at Toronto's Harborfront Centre Theatre in September. Masha, if you could take on and just continue with the idea of Russia creating Putin. Certainly for the last, well, at this point, almost 20 years, Russians have had little real political choice as Putin took over the media, as, um, as he did turn the country into, into a totalitarian country. But he, he did it without resorting to terror, he did it with very, very targeted, isolated instances of violence. And what that tells us is that, again, tens of millions of people happily and often profitably cooperated in creating Putinism. You and I met in Russia many, many years ago when you were packing to leave the U.S. or to leave for the U.S. for the second time in your life. I'm just wondering how often you contemplate or think about a post-Putin world, like where maybe an electorate can actually vote on issues like healthcare as opposed to how angry Russia is with the West or how wronged it is. I don't know how we get there, right? Because um, the surest, best way to a better place uh, where Russia currently lives is a Russian military defeat. 
what would a Russian military defeat mean? Uh, of course, it means the end of Putinism, but I think it also probably means the end of the Russian Empire. Uh, the Russian Empire is this vast, uh, it's still the largest landmass in the world, and it's still hundreds of colonized people, uh, peoples um, all over this empire. So what happens um, if that entity is militarily defeated? I think it breaks apart, right? So I don't know that we can meaningfully talk about a post-Putin Russia, because a Russia that doesn't suffer a military defeat continues to be some sort of beast, uh, you know, maybe, maybe somewhat reduced, maybe, maybe somewhat less aggressive than it currently is. Um, but basically, un until Russia gets to post-imperial future, it's this thing, and the only way to get it to a post-imperial future is to defeat it militarily. I want to talk a little bit more personally with, with both of you about your experiences, not just in the last 20 months, but, but uh, over your careers. So, Andre, you talked earlier about having been displaced in this conflict uh, and, and living that experience and, it, uh, and watching others going through it. I'm wondering if you could speak to how that individual experience of a specific war can give people a more universal human insight. Well, I mean, it, it is experience you will never forget. And, and of course, uh, uh, the first thing what happens that you, uh, you understand that uh, material values uh, don't mean much. <laughs> You accept that your house can be destroyed, and actually lots of houses, thousands and thousands of houses were destroyed. So, I mean, uh, we have now up to 10 million refugees of Ukrainian refugees abroad, and probably 20 or 30% of them lost their houses, and I'm not sure they will be going back. Yeah. But generally, uh, it is a medical state also. I mean, it, people start relying on the help, and they, if you rely on the help, at some point you start demanding the help. So you become psychologically unstable. You've said that you, you feel an obligation, a responsibility to continue to bear witness on this war, no matter how long it lasts. I'm just wondering how does committing to that role uh, feel to you as an artist, as someone who has a creative mind? It is exhausting. Yeah. And actually for 17 months, I mean, on the 24th of February... One, on the 23rd, I, uh, 22, I wrote last page uh, of my new novel, and then I stopped for 17 months. Yes. And I was writing only articles, and I was reporting uh, from Ukraine what is happening. And I was feeling, uh, in a way, sometimes empty, and wanted uh, to try to get back to the novel. Have you managed? Just, Have you managed? Uh, I failed four times, but I managed uh, when I was in Ukraine in the summer in the village, and I was extremely happy. So, I mean, uh, for me now, writing fiction is a luxury, and I can afford this luxury only after doing other duties, yeah. which means, actually, I spent very little time uh, working on the novel. How long can that state of suspension last? Uh, I, I don't know, because now I cannot predict my future as, as any Ukrainian. Sure. And when you cannot predict your future, you cannot plan anything. And so you live from day to day, and you hope that tomorrow will not be worse than today. And, and, and this is actually, I mean, it is, in a way, it is survival. Uh, in the other way, it is actually being in an 
unnatural state of mind and unnatural state also a physical state. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, I, I, I can think uh, what I want to do in January. I have ideas and I even bought some tickets, flights, etc. And I'm not sure I will use it. Masha, you've, you've become very much a go-to journalist on Russia and, and, and this war, um, but you've certainly thought and written about a whole variety of other things, including science writing and, and a whole bunch of other things. Can you envision a time when you'll actually be able to leave Russia behind as a, as a topic? I can't... Um, I mean, yes, I can envision that time. I've done that a couple of times. So, you know, it's like Mark Twain quitting smoking. Nothing easier than doing that. Um, I mean, I feel very lucky to be able to report on this war. Um, I can no longer back, go to Russia to report, but I can go to Ukraine, which makes me a lot more fortunate than most Russian journalists in exile who, can't, who are trying to cover this war without having access to either country. Um, and are doing extraordinary work. So I think as long as I can, I can do that, uh, that's, that's my job. You both pointed at identity as being important in this discussion. So I do have to ask you, Masha, you're as obviously a Russian-American dissident in exile with all the insight and the challenges that, that might come with that. How do you see your Russianness in light of all that's transpired over the last 20 months? Well, I mean, my Russianness has, uh, there, there have been long periods of my life when I insisted that I have a right to call myself Russian, even though Russia was not necessarily of that opinion, both uh, when I was a kid because I'm Jewish, uh, and um, when I was older because I'm queer. And now perhaps the tables have been flipped a little bit, um, there are certainly many Russians out in the world who would prefer not to be perceived as Russian. Um, but you know, it's, it's too late to leave that behind. Andre, a similar question. You were born near Leningrad, and typically you've written your novels in Russian. How does that part of your personal history fit into with, with how you feel as a Ukrainian today? Well, I moved with my family from uh, Leningrad region to Kyiv to my grandmother when I was one year and a half. So uh, I, I grew up in Kyiv. Right. And uh, living in Kyiv, of course, makes you very different from somebody who grows up in Moscow or in, uh, in Leningrad. Yeah. So for me... Uh, I felt always different from, I mean, when I was traveling to Russia, and I did a lot of travels in the 80s, I felt partially that time abroad, on, on the level of psychology and mentality and the questions I was asking and the answers I was receiving. And when I traveled in the post-Soviet time, it was even more remarkable, the difference. Because for Ukrainians, uh, independently from ethnic origin, Freedom is more important than stability. Ukraine never lived in a stable uh, state. For Russians, stability is more important than freedom. Mm. That's why actually the other big difference, uh, Russians 
thanks to Dostoevsky and Russian classical culture, are fatalists. They don't believe they can change anything. That's why they never protest, or if they protest, it is actually a very small number of people. Ukrainians are not fatalists. It is a foreign word for Ukrainians. They, they, when they are unhappy, they organize Maidan, or they start fighting. And, and so, actually, I grew up in the society where freedom was more important than anything else. And that, I think that made me Ukrainian. Does it matter to you now what language... Can you, can you speak to the importance of what language you write in now? Well, I have been uh, taking part in discussions regarding my uh, writing in Russian since independence. I was never beaten up for this. I mean, and actually, I, I was accepted. I, I, I speak Ukrainian, and in the last 15 years or 20 years, I do public events only in Ukrainian in Ukraine. I support Ukrainian language because the language was practically made extinct almost uh, to the level of Belarusian in Belarus. Yeah. And actually, I, uh, it was clear that the Russian language is a danger to Ukrainian culture and Ukrainian identity. And that's why... Uh, probably I, I, I can understand why young people who grew up in Russian-speaking families are switching into Ukrainian. Uh, the most famous writer from Donetsk, Volodymyr Rafeenko, who wrote uh, in Russian and who got two literary prizes in Moscow. Uh, last September he said he will never write a word in Russian mm -hmm. because he was two times refugee thanks to Russian soldiers and army. He survived three, month, three weeks in occupation with his wife. He was almost dead. And uh, we shouldn't forget that one of the first victims of the Russian invasion were Russian speakers of Mariupol. And we, know, we will never know how many of them are dead because Russians say that people left to Russia because the exit to Ukraine was closed. And then they were sent to Sakhalin. But I think they are dead souls, in fact. I mean, because relatives cannot find their rel other relatives who apparently were taken to Russia, but I think probably killed in Mariupol mm -hmm. by missiles and shellings. What are the long-term implications, Andre, for you as a person, as a writer, um, of being such a close observer of this conflict? It's difficult to say. Ask me about this in 10 years' time. I will answer. Um, I just want to say that I, I spent 10 days in 92 uh, on the front line be between Croatia and uh, Bosnia. And I wrote the first report from this war for Ukrainian newspaper. And I thought that this surreal war can never be repeated in Ukraine. And I was wrong. Uh, I was totally wrong. And I understand now that this kind of war now can happen anywhere. Yeah. It's important to let that sink in. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Masha? Could you speak to just what you, what you think the long term looks like for you, remaining a close observer of this conflict and of this story? Well, I already said that um, I count myself lucky for being able to, to do this. I feel like my background reporting on Russia and on Russia's wars, importantly, right? I, um, I covered both wars in Chechnya, uh, really made me best able to write on this war. And, and I also count myself lucky for 
having learned English as a teenager, so I can actually write about it in, in English and have a large audience. So um, it's for people who've chosen this profession. Uh, there's nothing more rewarding than having an audience and feeling qualified and having decent access. Like, what can be better? Yeah. You also live in New York. It's not exactly a politically unturbulent place, the United States. I, do you ever feel that you can actually relax your activism, your political vigilance? Is that even possible living in the United States? Compared to other places I've lived, <laughs> it's actually pretty idyllic. <laughs> We're almost done uh, with our discussion, um, and if, of course, we follow the usual uh, narrative arc, I now have to ask you about the future. So, Masha, we'll start with you. You once said that in order to counter totalitarianism with its callbacks to some imaginary golden past, people should instead imagine a glorious future. You said that back in 2017, though. What do you think now? Oh, I, I think it's... It's more important than ever to to create imaginative political movements. I've been trying to write a book about that for the last few years, but um, uh, since the full-scale invasion began, it slowed me down significantly. Yeah. You recently interviewed a, a philosopher by the name of Irina Zerbkina, is that how you say it, from Kharkiv, who said that peace must be imagined into being. Is that the only way? Well, it's the only way for any political future. You have to imagine it before you can make it happen. Mm -hmm. If you have no concept of it, uh, if you can't, um, yeah, if you can't sort of feel and speak your way through what it's going to be like, you can't bring it about. Yeah. Andre, as a novelist, if you could imagine a, gl a glorious future, what would that look like? Well. Uh, one element which is necessary for a glorious future is uh, death of Putin. And I will drink a lot on that day. But I know what will happen then. Uh, because will there will be a, a small internal Kremlin war for power, uh, probably between four groups. Three groups of generals of two secret services, military and FSB, and uh, generals of the army and Russian oligarchs. If the oligarchs win, the war will be stopped because they are the only group which are suffering because of the sanctions. If one of the generals wins, then he will be killed later and will have a murky future for Russia for several years until they find a compromise figure, non-political, pragmatic, who will say that he will want to restore Russian economy and trade with the West, and he will tolerate Ukraine as independent state uh, in the borders of 1991. If there's one thing, when you look at the external narrative of this conflict, if there's one thing maybe to end off with, both of you could change about the understanding of the rest of the world of this conflict, what would that be? I mean, in the beginning of the war, definitely people uh, didn't understand anything about Ukraine. And actually, before the war, many people didn't think about Ukraine. So uh, I think the war forced many to read books, non-fiction books on Ukraine, uh, books by Timothy Snyder and, and Applebaum, Serhii Plochi, uh, Martin Pollack from Austria, etc. And, uh, and when you read these books, you read books about Ukrainian history, 
And you understand that this war is really 300 years old, and this war is another attempt to assimilate Ukrainians, to make them collective instead of individualists. For this, actually, Russian language was used because when you force people to speak different language, then their history doesn't mean much because you have to accept the culture of the language, etc. So we have the déjà vu, uh, which already happened many times in Ukrainian history. And actually because of the individualism uh, of Ukrainians, Russia or Stalin deported 300,000 Ukrainian peasants to Siberia. Because of this, artificial hunger was organized. So, so, so I mean, I, I, I want everybody in the world to know the main moments of Ukrainian history to understand uh, the reason for this war. That actually, that question brings me back to your first question, which is about words. Mm. So um, I think the word that I've really come to hate uh, in, the, in the process of covering this war is escalate or escalation, right? Um, because I want, uh, you know, we hear so much and it sounds so reasonable when politicians and pundits say, oh, we can't give Ukraine this aid that Ukraine is asking for because we have to avoid escalation. Or, you know, we can't, we can't confront Putin in more meaningful ways because we have to avoid escalation. And I would like to translate into English what they're actually saying. What they're saying is, as long as only Ukrainians die in this war, we're okay, right? And so, if we just replace the word escalation with that, people would have to think twice before saying that sort of thing. Is that also Ukrainians' understanding of that word, Andre? Yeah, of large part of Ukrainians, yeah. And I think a lot of intellectuals also understand that slow delivery of weapons is done on purpose in order to prolong the war and to give more time to Putin to understand that he cannot win. I don't think it will change his mind because, I mean, he, he is not going to give up. And in fact, actually, the war will not be stopped when the occupied territories are liberated because Russia is shelling Ukraine from its territory also. So without pressure from the world leaders, from the leading countries, without negotiations, Without death of Putin, nothing will happen. We can go on for at least another couple of hours, but we can leave it there. Masha and Andre, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank for you very much. With thank me. you. It's a thank pleasure you. to have you here. Thank you for thank what you, you do. You've been listening to Notes on an Invasion, the 2023 Penn Canada Graham Gibson Talk, recorded at the International Festival of Authors at Harbourfront in Toronto. Andre Kirkov and Masha Gessen were this year's speakers. You can find more information about them on our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. Special thanks to Penn Canada, to event coordinator Josh Nelman, Harbourfront Production Coordinator Bill Zielstra, 
and Ansley Newland of the International Festival of Authors. This episode was produced by Lisa Godfrey. Web producer for ideas is Lisa Ayuso. Gabby Hagorilis and Danielle Duval are technical producers. The senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. Ideas executive producer is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. Leaving you with a few minutes of a Writers and Company interview with Andre Kirchhoff, recorded last spring from Kiev. Here is Eleanor Wachtel. It's a city you've described as beautiful and eternal. What makes it so? Well, uh, partially my imagination, partially my love for, for my city, and of course myths, legends, and landscape of the city, this uh, uh, high bank, uh, right bank uh, of Kiev, uh, of Dnieper River, with monasteries from 12th and 14th centuries, with forests on the hills, Uh, with wonderful old buildings, also because there were so many parks. And uh, and there are lots of quotations about this. And now, I mean, you don't know if they are real or not. I mean, like General Charles de Gaulle, when he visited Kiev, he said he he saw many cities uh, with some forests and parks inside, but he has never uh, seen a huge park with a city inside. <laughs> and, and, and actually, it's a magical place because, I mean, like the most famous tram uh, route in Kiev, number 12, goes from central Jewish quarter, Podil, in Kiev, across the forest to a, a resort area which was very popular 50, 70 years ago, which is called Pushavadica. And you you ride on this tram for 15 minutes through the forest, pine forest. And there are two or three stops there where you can get off in the middle of the forest and go mushroom picking. And then uh, with the mushrooms, you can go to the next stop and take tram either back to Kiev or further to the lakes of Pushavodica Resort. As you were saying that the Russian missiles that began falling on Kiev at five in the morning on the 24th of February last year took you by surprise. We had dinner with our friends and at five o'clock in the morning uh, I was woken up, I mean me and my wife, uh, by the explosions uh, from outside and I jumped to the window trying to understand what is happening. I mean, I, I of course I already understood what happened, but I I needed information, I needed, and I, I needed, and I didn't want to know at the same time. So I was just standing still. Uh, and at six o'clock in the morning, there were two more explosions. And, and then somehow I started feeling that I should do something. And we all went outside. We checked uh, the nearest bomb shelters because before that moment, actually, we didn't think we would need them. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.